0: To Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. everyone this is your host paul and this is episode 175 and just a quick reminder if you're looking for episodes 174a 174b 174c and many other episodes of the mysteries abound podcast they're available at the patreon.com forward slash paul rex website Our first story this week comes from the tkingear.com website. Ten of the coolest things in space that you had no idea existed. Although we don't know much about our expanding and potentially infinite universe, what we have found so far is a mix of awe-inspiring, terrifying and downright weird. Here are a few space oddities that you had no idea existed. There's a giant space cloud that might smell like rum. Space cloud Sagittarius B2 is a vast cloud of dust and gas at the centre of our galaxy. The cloud is largely composed of ethyl formate, which is the molecule that gives rum its unique aroma and provides raspberries with their fruity taste. So, if you were to float through Sagittarius B2, you might be surrounded by the aroma of rum and the taste of raspberries. Scientists have found a planet that might be made of solid diamond. In 2017, an international research team of astronomers discovered what may be a planet made of solid diamond. Pulsars are tiny dead neutron stars that are only around 12.4 miles in diameter and spin hundreds of times a second while emitting beams of radiation. This planet is paired with pulsar PSR J1719-1438 and scientists think it is entirely made of carbon so dense that it must be crystalline Meaning a large part of the world would be diamond. Incredibly, the planet orbits its star every two hours and ten minutes, has slightly more mass than Jupiter, but is twenty times as dense, according to Reuters. There's also a planet that's made completely of ice, but it's on fire. Gliese 436b is a bit of a paradox. The far-away exoplanet is made mostly out of ice. But strangely, this ice appears to be on fire. The surface of Gliese 436b is a searing 822 degrees Fahrenheit. But the planet's icy landscape stays frozen due to the immense gravitational force exerted by the planet's core. This force keeps the ice much denser than the ice we're familiar with here on Earth and is thought to even compress any water vapour that might evaporate. The Black Widow Pulsar consumes its companion. The Black Widow Pulsar, or Pulsar J1311-3430, as it's known in astronomical circles, is a type of neutron star that's slowly blasting its companion star with radiation according to the American Astronomical Society. The more material the pulsar blasts off that star, the slower it spins. The energy lost by the pulsar as it spins can blast its companion, causing it to evaporate. Astronomers have discovered a rogue planet that drifts across the universe, alone. The discovery of rogue planet cfbdsir 2149 in 2012 had the scientific community buzzing. That's because the planets we're most familiar with orbit a star. But this planet, however, appears to be drifting across space without a star. The planet is about seven times more massive than Jupiter. Astronomers think that there are probably billions of rogue planets. In fact, they believe that they likely outnumber planets with suns. There's a planet where it rains, razor-sharp glass, sideways. The pretty blue hue of exoplanet HD 189733b conceals the planet's brutal environment. According to NASA, if you were to stroll on the surface of this world, you'd be subjected to winds of up to 5,400 miles per hour. That's about seven times the speed of sound. Worse, the rain on this planet is thought to be made of jagged glass and to sweep sideways across the planet. Scientists have discovered a bunch of potentially habitable planets. Astronomers have identified over 40 other planets that might be Earth-like, meaning they have conditions that could potentially be favourable to alien life. One of the most recent and promising discoveries came in 2017 when the European Southern Observatory identified Ross 128b, an exoplanet 11 light-years away from us. This planet is thought to have a rocky landscape and a temperature range that could allow liquid water to exist on its surface. An entire year on Ross 128b only lasts about 10 days. Real shooting stars exist. You probably know about the shooting stars we see streak across our night sky are actually meteors burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. It turns out, however, that some stars do actually hurtle across space. These hypervelocity stars were discovered by astronomers in 2005. They're thought to form when a binary star system, a system with two stars, gets destroyed by a supermassive black hole. One of the stars in the system is usually consumed by the black hole, while the other is sent flying across space at a rate of millions of miles per hour. There are 100 mirrors sitting on the surface of the Moon. Most people don't know that astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong left a curious souvenir behind on the lunar surface after their 1969 Apollo mission. The Space Explorers deposited a two-foot-wide panel covered in 100 mirrors onto the surface of the Moon. Astronomers today still use this panel to calculate the distance from the Moon to the Earth by reflecting laser pulses in the mirrors. It's the only experiment from the Apollo missions still running. And lastly, the biggest water supply in the universe is floating around a black hole. Water is essential to human life and there's no place in the universe with more of it than the APM 08279 plus quasar. Quasars by definition are very compact objects with a star-like appearance and incredible luminosity. They are thought to be powered by supermassive black holes. This quasar in particular contains a black hole surrounded by a vapour cloud that contains 140 trillion times the amount of water on Earth. It's the biggest reservoir of water ever discovered. Due to the way light travels through space, scientists theorise that this watery cloud formed only 1.6 billion years after the Universe itself. The Man Walks the Streets of London Late at Night The Rip Up, John The Rip Up With a little black bag That's oh so tight wonder if you guessed what the next story is about, everyone. And that's a live recording of Jack the Ripper from 1964 by Screaming Lord Such. And if you want to look at it, there's a link in the show notes at origins.info. From the dailymail.co.uk website, A Polish barber, 23, was Jack the Ripper, say scientists, after they conducted fresh DNA tests on blood-covered shawl found at one of the murder scenes. And this article is written by Jack Elsom. Jack the Ripper has sensationally been revealed as a 23-year-old Polish barber after fresh DNA tests were taken from a blood-stained shawl. Aaron Kosminski was the notorious serial killer who hunted on the streets of Victorian London, according to scientists. New evidence finds the two sets of DNA traces on the clothing matches that of both Kosminski and one of his murdered victims, Catherine Eddowes. The Polish immigrant lived with his two brothers and a sister in Greenfield Street, just 200 yards from where his third victim, Elizabeth Stride, was killed. The identity was confirmed by researchers from Liverpool John Moores University who shared their findings in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. They wrote, We describe, for the first time, systematic, molecular-level analysis of the only surviving physical evidence linked to the Jack the Ripper murders. Finding both matching profiles in the same piece of evidence enhances the statistical probability of its overall identification and reinforces the claim that the shawl is authentic. Businessman Russell Edwards, 48, who bought the shawl at auction in 2007, contacted the scientist several years ago. It had been found next to Edo's body and was stained with what was believed to be her blood. Eddowes was slaughtered by Konsminski on the night of September 30, 1888 in Mitre Square, Whitechapel, where her kidney was hacked out and her cheeks ripped apart. The serial killer is then rumoured to have eaten her kidney in a revolting and twisted act of pride. Eddowes was the second woman to have died at the hands of Jack the Ripper that night. He had slit Elizabeth Stride's throat an hour earlier. Kosminski was linked to the notorious killer in 2014 when Dr. Jari Lohulailan, one of the authors in this week's paper, studied the same shawl. But his claims were rubbished by other scientists who said he made an error of nomenclature in his analysis. The 130-year mystery of the murderer's identity continued, but these new findings appear to have finally unmasked the villain. And if you're interested in this story, visit the show notes at origins.info or at patreon.com forward slash paulrex. Click on the link to this article in episode 175. And there, there are some drawings and photographs associated with this article. And one of them includes a drawing of Aaron Kosminski. Hmm, certainly looks like he could be Jack the Ripper. A mean looking guy. from the businessinsider.com website a story by Blake Stilwell Four Creepy Ghost Stories from the Vietnam War In spring 1993 a Vietnamese farmer was on his way to work his rice paddy when he passed his wife and children on the road The wife sat on a rock and greeted him scornfully as his children cowered behind their mother. The meeting shocked the farmer as his wife and his three children were killed when their village was attacked in 1968 and his house was burned to the ground. Stories like this are common in Vietnam where rural communities attach deep meaning to spiritual encounters. In this case, the man understood his wife's grave had been disturbed in the village's recent developments He immediately set out to give them a proper reburial. But there are many, many more ghost stories throughout Vietnam relevant to the war fought there. Many of those persist to this day. Saigon's haunted apartments. The building at 727 Tran Hung Dao in Ho Chi Minh City, also known as Saigon, was a building that housed American service members for much of the Vietnam War. But its construction was plagued by accidents from the get-go, some of which killed the workers building it. Many blamed it on the number of floors the building had, 13 which was considered unlucky. In order to assuage their fears and get the building completed, the architect decided to call in a shaman to fix the building's feng shui issues. It's said that the shaman brought the dead bodies of four virgins from the local hospital and buried them at the four corners of the building, which would protect it from evil spirits. To this day, residents hear screams of horror in the middle of the night, the sound of a military parade on the march through the building, and the apparition of a spectral American GI walking, holding hands with his Vietnamese girlfriend. The Tunnel Rats Encounter. On Reddit, a terminally ill Vietnam veteran recounted a story of his time in Vietnam that he was going to take to his grave, but opted to put it on our no sleep instead. For the uninitiated, Army Tunnel Rats were troops who would crawl into NVA and Viet Cong tunnels to eradicate the troops that hid there below the surface. It was one of the war's most dangerous jobs crawling around in the dark, avoiding booby traps and trying to kill before they killed you. This tunnel rat was crawling into the deepest tunnel he'd ever been in, along with his partner. When they finally arrived in the main room, they were astonished that no booby traps were set, and an oil lamp was still lit. The only thing they found was a tarp. But when they moved the tarp, it revealed a set of stone stairs, moving deeper underground. The stairs were odd, and definitely not built by the VC. They looked centuries old. The two men cautiously climbed down the stairs, guns drawn, when they came upon another tarp. Cautiously, the rats moved the tarp with their pistols and fixed their flashlights on ten or so Vietnamese people dressed as VC, but with blank faces looking into space, bodies rocking back and forth, eyes a solid colour. The men waved their flashlights and weapons in their faces, but nothing stopped their rocking motion. Their now rusted weapons were in a pile in the corner. At the head of the room was a golden icon of a naked woman, except the lower half of her body featured eight tentacles instead of human legs. The men were tempted to touch the icon, but instead decided to rig the entrance with C4 and bail as fast as possible. As they were leaving, a woman's voice called out to them. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link, you'll find the rest of this story at Reddit. It looks to be quite long, probably way too long for this podcast. Sorry to do it that way, but... This is the way the article's written. A veteran comes home. On a Notre Dame alumni website, one alum remarks about his chance encounter with a guy he had known since grade school. He was working at a construction job in 1967 and was on his way home after work one night. He was coming around the corner when he walked by an old funeral parlour. He noticed the man was his old friend Jerry a guy he hadn't seen in two years. The construction worker was tired and not really in the mood to rehash old times, so he put his hat down and walked by his old friend unnoticed. When he got home, his mother was on the phone talking to one of the construction worker's friends. She immediately stopped her son to tell him that his old friend Jerry had been killed in Vietnam and his body was at the funeral parlour down the street. Ghouls of the Jungle Marines in Vietnam would often try to recruit locals to help guide them in their area of operations. In some areas, however, the locals were fearful of going into the densest, darkest parts of the jungle. The reason they found was the local superstition that phantoms called Ma occupied the trees there. Montagnards warned the US troops that reanimated corpses awaited them in the trees. The marines, of course, shrugged the stories off as folklore. Starting in 1965, it became very real. American troops in the jungles of Vietnam began reporting ghostly figures moving supernaturally through the trees. Others reported fanged creatures with black eyes that would try to kidnap and consume unsuspecting troops. In one encounter, the beasts were found to be bulletproof. It didn't matter what time of the day it was. The corpses lived by both day and night. Since the triple canopy jungle kept the sunlight from hitting them, the military's top brass decided to get rid of it that's the real reason the military developed Agent Orange and Napalm. The marines would then roll in with the flamethrowers to finish the job. And from theconversation.com A story by Adrienne Mare Robots guarded Buddha's relics in a legend of ancient India As early as Homer, more than two and a half thousand years ago, Greek mythology explored the idea of automatons and self-moving devices. By the 3rd century BC, engineers in Hellenistic Alexandria in Egypt were building real mechanical robots and machines. And such science fictions and historical technologies were not unique to Greco-Roman culture. In my recent book, Gods and Robots, I explain that many ancient societies imagined and constructed automatons. Chinese chronicles tell of emperors fooled by realistic androids and describe artificial servants crafted in the 2nd century by female inventor Wang Yaying. Techno-marvels, such as flying war chariots and animated beings, also appear in Hindu epics. One of the most intriguing stories from India tells how robots once guarded Buddha's relics. As fanciful as it might sound to modern ears, This tale has a strong basis in links between ancient Greece and ancient India. The story is set in the time of kings Ajat Asatru and Ashukar. Ajat Asatru, who reigned from 492 to 460 BC, was recognised for commissioning new military inventions, such as powerful catapults and a mechanised war chariot with whirling blades. When Buddha died, Ajat Ashatru was entrusted with defending his precious remains. The king hid them in an underground chamber near his capital, Patalaputta, now Patna, in northeastern India. Traditionally, statues of giant warriors stood on guard near treasures. But in the legend, Ajat Ashatru's guards were extraordinary. They were robots. In India, automatons or mechanical beings that could move on their own were called Buddha-Vana-Yanta, or spirit movement machines in Pali and Sanskrit. According to the story, it was foretold that acha robots would remain on duty until a future king would distribute Buddha's relics throughout the realm. Ancient Robots and Automatons Hindu and Buddhist texts describe automaton warriors whirling like the wind, slashing intruders with swords, recalling Asha Atatru's war chariots with spinning blades. In some versions the robots are driven by a water wheel or made by Vishvak Aman, the Hindu engineer god. But the most striking version came by a tangled route to the Lokapanati of Burma. Pali translations of older, lost Sanskrit texts, only known from Chinese translations, each drawing on earlier oral traditions. In this tale, many Yantakara robot makers lived in the western land of the Yavanus, Greek speakers in Roma Visaya, the Indian name for the Greco-Roman culture of the Mediterranean world. The Yavanas' secret technology of robots was closely guarded. The robots of Roma Visaya carried out trade and farming and captured and executed criminals. Robot makers were forbidden to leave or reveal their secrets. If they did, robotic assassins pursued and killed them. Rumours of the fabulous robots reached India. Inspiring a young artisan of Patalaputta, Aja Ashatru's capital, who wish to learn how to make automatons. In the legend, the young man of Patalaputta finds himself reincarnated in the heart of Roma Visaya. He marries the daughter of the master robot maker and learns his craft. One day he steals plans for making robots and hatches a plot to get them back to India. Certain of being slayed by killer robots before he could make the trip himself, He slits open his thigh, inserts the drawings under his skin and sews himself back up. Then he tells his son to make sure his body makes it back to Patalaputta and starts the journey. He's caught and killed but his son recovers his body and brings it to Patalaputta. Once back in India, the son retrieves the plans from his father's body and follows their instructions to build the automated soldiers for King Ajat Ashatru to protect Buddha's relics in the underground chamber. Well hidden and expertly guarded, the relics and robots fell into obscurity. Two centuries after Ajat Ashatru, Ashuka ruled a powerful Mayan Empire in Patalaputta, 273-232 BC. Ashuka constructed many stupas to enshrine Buddha's relics across his vast kingdom. According to the legend, Ashuka had heard the legend of the hidden relics and searched until he discovered the underground chamber, guarded by the fierce android warriors. Violent battles raged between Ashuka and the robots. In one version, the god Vishvak Aman helped Ashuka to defeat them by shooting arrows into the bolts that held the spinning constructions together. In another tale, the old engineer's son explained how to disable and control the robots. At any rate, Ashuka ended up commanding the army of automatons himself exchange between East and West. Is this legend simply fantasy? Or could the tale have coalesced around early cultural exchanges between East and West? The story clearly connects the mechanical beings defending Buddha's relics to automatons of Roma Visaya, the Greek-influenced West. How ancient is the tale? Most scholars assume it arose in medieval, Islamic and European times. But I think the story could be much older. The historical setting points to technological exchange between Marian and Hellenistic cultures. Contact between India and Greece began in the 5th century BC, a time when Arjat Ashatru's engineers created novel war machines. Greco-Buddhist cultural exchange intensified after Alexander the Great's campaigns in northern India. In 300 BC, two Greek ambassadors, Megasthenes and Demarchus, resided in Patilaputta, which boasted Greek-influenced art and architecture, and was the home of the legendary artisan who obtained plans for robots in Roma Visea. Grand pillars erected by Ashukar are inscribed in ancient Greek and name Hellenistic kings, demonstrating Ashukar's relationship with the West. Historians know that Ashukar corresponded with Hellenistic rulers, including Ptolemy II Philadelphus in Alexandria whose spectacular procession in 279 BC famously displayed complex animated statues and automated devices. Historians report that Ashukar sent envoys to Alexandria and Ptolemy II sent ambassadors to Ashukar in Patalaputta. It was customary for diplomats to present splendid gifts to show off cultural achievements. Did they bring plans or miniature models of automatons and other mechanical devices? I cannot hope to pinpoint the original date of the legend, but it is plausible that the idea of robots guarding Buddha's relics melds both real and imagined engineering feats from the time of Arjat Ashatru and Ashikar. This striking legend is proof that the concepts of building automatons were widespread in antiquity and reveals the universal and timeless link between imagination and science. From TheHistoryExtra.com, a story by Melita Thomas. Mary, Queen of Scots. What happened to her ladies-in-waiting? They witnessed firsthand the most eventful periods in Mary Stuart's life, accompanying her everywhere and enjoying the lavish court entertainments so important to 16th century monarchy. But what happened to the four girls appointed to be companions and later ladies-in-waiting to the Queen of Scots? Melita Thomas, editor of Tudor Times, investigates. Yes, the Queen had four Marys and nick she'll hay but three. There was Mary Seaton and Mary Beaton and Mary Carmichael and me. So runs the old ballad, remembering the four friends and companions of a fifth Mary. Mary Stuart, the romantic and ill-fated Queen of Scots. The Queen's fate is well known, but who were her four Marys and what became of them? Mary Stuart was Queen of Scots in her cradle. Her early years were spent in an atmosphere of unease as her mother Marie de Guise sought to protect her from the predatory Scottish nobles, who fought for the Regency and for control of the little Queen. The nobility was divided between those who supported the traditional French and Catholic alliance that Marie represented, and those who looked to a newly Protestant England to support the burgeoning Scottish Reformation. Despite this tension, Marie de Guise sought to give her daughter a happy childhood and appointed four girls to be her companions and later ladies-in-waiting. What all the girls had in common, as well as their Christian name, was noble birth and similarity in age to the Queen. There was also, whether deliberately or not, a pun in the choice of girls called Mary, as Marie was the Scots word for a maid, derived from the Icelandic Mare. The ballad above is slightly wrong on the names. They were Seton, Beaton, Fleming and Livingstone. Fleming's mother Janet, Lady Fleming, was the illegitimate half-sister of Mary's father, James V, and Livingstone was the daughter of the Queen's guardian, Alexander, 5th Lord of Livingstone of Calendar. Beaton's grandfather was first cousin to Cardinal David Beaton, one of the men vying for the role of regent. While Seaton was the daughter of George, fourth Lord Seton, and she and Beaton were also daughters of two of Marie de Guise's lady-in-waiting. The Four Marys in France The location Marie de Guise chose is most likely to keep the Queen safe during these troubled times was the almost impregnable fortress of Stirling Castle. However, it soon became apparent that this was not a long-term solution. The English government, first under Henry VIII, Mary's great uncle, and then the Lord Protector and Council of Edward VI, was determined that she should marry Edward VI, a view supported by some of the Scots' nobles. Marie de Guise and the pro-French faction among the nobles were determined to prevent this, favouring the old alliance with France, especially when it came well lubricated with French pensions, and intended her to marry the French heir, Dauphin François, son of King Henri II. In preparation for an escape to France, the Queen was first sent to Inchmahome Priory, and then to Dumbarton on the coast. It was at Inchmahome that the four Marys joined her household. In 1548 they set sail for France. The girls endured a rough crossing, all except the Queen were afflicted by seasickness. Livingstone and Fleming at least had the consolation of travelling with their families, since Lord Livingstone and Lady Fleming as guardian and governess accompanied the Queen. On arrival, Mary was immediately taken into the household of King Henri's children, while her four friends were sent away. Henri II's motive for separating Mary from her companions was twofold. First, he wanted her to speak French rather than Scots, and second, he wanted her closest friends to be his daughters, the princesses Elizabeth and Claude. Not that Henri was averse to a Scots tête-à-tête, Lady Fleming was sent home in disgrace after bearing him a son. The four Marys were dispatched to the Dominican Royal Priory of St. Louis at Poissy. Far from being a backwater, Poissy was at the forefront of Renaissance learning with close ties to the court. There the Marys would have received a thorough humanist education, as well as learning all the skills necessary to be wives of noblemen and attendants on a queen. Seton seems to have been trained in hairdressing too. Her skill in dressing her mistress's head, first when Mary's lustrous auburn hair was the toast of European courts, then afterwards when it thinned and greyed and was augmented by wigs, was remarked on. Later, the Marys returned to the Queen's household, where they enjoyed such domestic pleasures as making marmalade and crystallised fruit at the centre of the Scottish court, 1561-68. to 68. Mary married Francois in 1558. Following her brief period as Queen of France, the widowed Mary, Francois died in December 1560, returned to Scotland in 1561, aged 18, and ready to take up the burden of personal sovereignty. Her Marys returned with her as ladies-in-waiting. The first years in Scotland were taken up with Mary's determination to control the complex political situation with which she was faced. As a group of nobles led by James Stewart, 1st Earl of Moray, Mary's half-brother, and calling themselves the Lords of the Congregation, had converted, some with rather more sincerity than others, to Protestantism, and challenged the official religion of Scotland, This led them to look for support from Protestant England rather than Catholic France. Mary, no religious fanatic, tried to steer a course between the different factions that sought to dominate her. When not engaged in state business, the Queen recreated some of the splendour of the Court of France, and in this she was ably assisted by her Marys. The Four Marys went everywhere with the Queen, even accompanying her to Parliament in 1563. They had stools in her chamber, when to sit in the presence of the monarchy was an extraordinary honour. They waited on her at table. They took leading roles in the lavish court entertainments so important to 16th century monarchy. They danced at masks played music for visiting ambassadors, rode, hunted and hawked with the Queen and her nobles. More informally, they joined Mary in dressing up as burgesses' wives, to walk around Edinburgh and St Andrew's, shopping in the market and cooking, in a faint foreshadowing of another doomed Queen, Marie Antoinette. They even donned male costumes on one occasion at a banquet for the French ambassador as well as for practical reasons when hunting, outraging the sensibilities of the increasingly dominant religious radicals. Mary was unfortunate in that her greatest enemy at home was John Knox. Knox, a militant Calvinist, was even more misogynistic than most men of the age. And spent a good deal of time inveighing against female rule in such delightful tomes as, The first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, and haranguing Mary in both public and private. Knox made the most of every innocent pastime, derived from youth and high spirits, at the Queen's court to insinuate that the Queen and her entourage, including the Marys, lived immoral lives. Pressure mounted for the Queen to remarry. There were many at home and abroad who had their eyes on the crown, and even Mary's person. In a frightening incident, a young foolish poet, Chastelard, was found hiding under the royal bed. Mary, too nervous to sleep alone thereafter, took Fleming as her bedfellow. The Queen's affection for her Marys was one argument used to persuade her to take a husband as they all had vowed to remain single while she did. Mary did remarry in July 1565, but life for all of the Marys would probably have been better had she stayed a widow. The marriage to Lord Darnley, whom she wed in 1565, proved disastrous. The Marys in love. Whatever the Mary's earlier matrimonial intentions, The first of them, Livingstone, was married in March 1565 to John Semple, son of Robert Lord Semple. Knox, who had referred to Livingstone as Lusty, suggested the match was rushed. Livingstone and Semple, who was a noted dancer, had been tripping the light fantastic with gusto, and from this Knox inferred that she was pregnant. It seems unlikely, as the betrothal took place a year before the wedding and the first of their several children was not born until a year after it. The Queen attended the elaborate ceremony and gave them a gift of a bed hung with scarlet and black velvet, with embroidered taffeta curtains and silk fringes, as well as land, drawing Knox's fire again for granting lands to courtiers. Livingstone remained at court as keeper of the Queen's jewels. When Mary made a will in 1566, Livingstone drew up a minute inventory of her jewels, specimens of which were bequeathed to the Marys, should the Queen die in childbed. Beaton, considered the best-looking of the four Marys, caught the eye of Thomas Randolph, the English ambassador. Around twice her age, perhaps he hoped that his position would attract her. The Queen's biographer, John Guy, refers to them as lovers, But it seems unlikely that one of the Queen's closest friends would expose Mary to the risks of confidential information leaking out, unless Beaton were acting in concert with Mary, extracting information from Randolph. Beaton must have had the reputation of being politically influential with the Queen, as she received letters and gifts from the wife of Sir Nicholas Throckmorton, one of the other English ambassadors. Beaton was courted by Randolph for some time, but in 1566 married Alexander Ogilvie, by whom she had at least one son. Beaton died in around 1598, and her widower promptly married Lady Jean Gordon, the wife whom James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, had thrown off to marry Queen Mary. Livingstone was full of spirits and Beaton was the prettiest, But Fleming apparently carried the palm for overall attractiveness. As Queen of the Bean at the Twelfth Night Ceremonies in 1564, she was dressed in cloth of silver and jewels. And this flower of the flock's dazzling looks attracted poetry and prose panegyrics. Fleming was courted in 1564 by William Maitland of Lethington. Maitland had a chequered history in Mary's service, One of the few nobles who was Protestant by conviction, he had joined the Lords of the Congregation and was a friend of Sir William Cecil, the English Secretary of State, whose whole life was dedicated to eliminating Mary. Maitland failed to warn Mary of the plot to murder her secretary, David Rizzio, and it is likely too that he knew of the plot against Darnley. Darnley and a group of Protestant nobles stabbed to death Rizzio on the 9th of March 1566, after they convinced him Rizzio was Mary's lover. Mary could never forgive Darnley, who was himself murdered on the 9th of February 1567. Fleming, of course, probably had no idea of the extent of Maitland's duplicity. Maitland seems to have fallen headlong in love with her, and his passion was the subject of some mockery at court. Nearly 20 years older than she was, he was described by one courtier as being as suitable for her as I am to be Pope. Maitland has been identified as a prime suspect for the forger of the casket letters, which triggered accusations that Mary was complicit in Darnley's murder. The letters contained eight missives and a series of sonnets said to have been written by Mary Queen of Scots to the Earl of Bothwell between January and April 1567. They were produced as evidence against Queen Mary by the Scottish lords who opposed her rule. Whatever his machinations, Maitland later became an adherent of what was known as the Queen's Party – that wished to restore her, if not to full monarchy, at least to regency for her son James. The Queen's party, which included Fleming and Maitland, held Edinburgh Castle in 1573, but when it was captured by the English, they were handed over to the Regent Morton. Fleming was freed, struggling to retain her diamond and ruby chain that had been Queen Mary's while Maitland, carried out of the castle on a litter, died before he could be brought to trial. Suicide was rumoured. The King's party planned to hang, draw and quarter his dead body, but Fleming wrote to Cecil asking him to intervene. He passed the plea to Elizabeth, who requested the Scottish lords to spare the body. Fleming waited till 1583 for Maitland's lands to be restored. She and Maitland had two children, a son James converted to the old faith and fled to France, while their daughter Margaret became Countess of Roxburgh. The fourth Mary Seaton never married, but stayed with her mistress for many years. After the surrender at Carberry Hill, Mary surrendered and later went to exile in England following the Battle of Carberry Hill, 15th of June 1567, which took place near Edinburgh after a number of Scottish lords subjected Mary's rule following her marriage to the Earl of Bothwell, who was widely believed to have murdered her previous husband, Lord Darnley. She joined Mary in captivity at Loch Castle. By standing at the window, dressed in the Queen's clothes, she gave Mary time to slip out of the castle and escape across the loch in a rowing boat. Later, when Mary fled to even more onerous imprisonment in England, Seaton was permitted to join her and spent 15 years incarcerated in the gloomy series of castles where Mary wore her life away. In 1570, Seaton's mother wrote to her and was apprehended by the King's Party, who sought to banish her from Scotland for communicating with Mary's household. Elizabeth intervened, requesting forbearance. If the cause be no greater, than writing to her daughter. By 1583, even Seton's devotion and health were tried by the long imprisonment, and she was given leave to retire to a French convent at Reims. Seton lived on to see her mistress's son inherit the crown of England before dying in 1615. She was buried in the convent she had dwelt in for more than 30 years. Were her last thoughts of the charismatic Queen she had served so faithfully, or did it all seem a distant dream? But why should I fear a nameless grave when I've hopes for eternity there was Mary Seaton and Mary Beaton and Mary Fleming and me? To most people, hundreds of smaller kingdoms have popped up through Africa's history, with some eventually growing into powerful empires. These vast nations united Africa, managed wealthy trade routes, and controlled a potluck of cultures. From the listverse.com, a list by Sylvia Nika. Ten African civilizations more amazing. Than ancient Egypt. Number 10. The Axum Empire. While a Christian revolution was occurring in Europe, a powerful kingdom emerged on the African continent. In present day Ethiopia, the Axum Empire became one of the largest markets of northeast Africa, with its epic trading and naval strength. As traders from this country were going past the Nile River and into Alexandria, Aksum dominated the coast of the Red Sea until the 7th century. Besides influencing other superpowers in Africa, Europe and Asia, this empire created Giz, Africa's only original written script, and had throngs of foreign visitors. One Persian writer hailed Aksum as one of the four greatest powers of the world. Still, little is known about this impressive African civilization. Number 9. The Benin Empire A unique settlement in what is now present-day Nigeria. The Kingdom of Benin began when the Edo people cut down trees in the West African rainforest. By the 1400s, the little settlement had developed into a mighty kingdom. The rulers of Benin, called the Obar, had an unusual taste for brass in their stunning palaces. The Benin people also used brass in artwork, statues and plaques depicting gory battle scenes. As for trading, Benin found wealth due to its location near the Niger River, which allowed merchants to trade with African kingdoms in the north. On the south end of the empire was the Atlantic Ocean, which permitted ships to exchange goods such as coral beads, pepper and leopard skins. European trade commenced during the 14th century. The Benin Empire came to an end when the British invaded to take Benin's resources and burned the empire to the ground. Number 8 The Kingdom of Ghana Ancient Ghana, which sat on an immense gold mine, was so rich that even its dogs wore collars made of the precious metal. With strategic planning, powerful leaders and an abundance of natural resources, Ghana soon became another big African influence. Trading with Europeans and North Africans, Ghana imported books, cloth and horses in exchange for gold and ivory. Salt was also in high demand. Arab businessmen often struggled for months to reach the kingdom and trade. If someone was accused of breaking the law in Ghana, that person was forced to drink an acrid blend of wool and water. If he threw up the mixture, he was considered innocent. Otherwise, he was considered guilty and punished by the king. Despite holding off many invasions, Ghana eventually collapsed in 1240. Isolated from trade and weakened by its rivals, the kingdom was absorbed into the growing Mali Empire. Number 7. The Mali Empire. The Mali Empire was a major African civilization that thrived between the 13th and 16th centuries. Founded by a man named Sundiata Keita, aka the Lion King, the empire was located near present day West Africa. While the Lion King was an impressive ruler, the empire flourished the most under Mansa Musa, who holds the title of the richest man in history. His fortune was worth a whopping $400 billion, an amount that puts Bill Gates to shame. Musa also made Timbuktu, the Mali capital, the main centre for education and culture in Africa, allowing scholars from all over the continent to come and study. Like Benin, Mali was successful in trade because of its location by the Niger River. However, it was plundered by invaders from Morocco in 1593. This weakened the empire and Mali soon ceased to be an important political entity. Number 6. Nok civilization. The first traces of this mysterious civilization were discovered in 1928 by a group of Nigerian tin miners. As archaeologists uncovered bits of pottery, rock paint, and tools, they were shocked to realize how advanced this previously unknown civilization was. During their existence from 900 BC until AD 200, the Nok culture created a complex judicial system, centuries before modern ones were invented. Using several different classes of courts, they dealt with manners such as theft, murder, adultery and family disputes. The Nock people were also the earliest makers of life-sized terracotta statues. Their statues depicted alien-looking people with long heads, almond-shaped eyes and parted lips. The Noks were also advanced in metalworking, forging small knives, spear points and bracelets. In AD 200, the Nok population rapidly declined for no reason. Famine, over-reliance on resources and climate change have all been proposed as explanations. Number five, the Kingdom of Kush. Relatively unknown outside of Africa, the Kingdom of Kush was located in present-day Sudan. This civilization was strikingly similar to Egypt and once ruled like Egyptian pharaohs. The Kushites also mummified their dead, built pyramids as burial grounds and worshipped crazy gods. However, there were several key differences between the two cultures. Iron had become a huge resource for Kush while the Egyptians were still discovering the wonders of this metal. Women also played a much bigger role in Kush society and queens often succeeded the kings. In fact, one of the biggest pyramids in Kush was built to honour a female ruler. Kush was also famous for its archers, who were often depicted in artwork. However, it's theorised that their culture declined after Kush was invaded by Izana from Axum, and then taken over by a new society called the X-Group, a.k.a. the Balana culture. Number four, the Songhai Empire. The Songhai Empire spanned thousands of miles across much of West Africa, lasting nearly 800 years. The kingdom was considered one of the greatest empires in the world from the 15th to 16th centuries. As with other African civilizations, Songhai derived most of its wealth from trading which was extremely safe due to the 200,000-person army placed along its provinces. Several thousand cultures were under its control, all held together by a centralised government bureaucracy. A new currency was also created which allowed the diverse cultures to blend and unite. The size of this empire was its downfall, with its enormous territory too difficult to control. Songhai tumbled into civil war and by the end of the 16th century the once mighty empire had fractured into smaller, squabbling kingdoms. The Land of Punt Located in present-day Somalia, Punt was considered the Atlantis of Africa. Unlike most African civilizations, the people of this land, Land of the Gods, were described as having dark red complexions and long hair and citizens lived in reed huts, suspended on stilts above the water. Trading missions between Egypt and Punt were common, including the first documented flora exchange when Queen Soup traded trees during her famous expedition. All sorts of goods were exchanged with Punt, from incense and ivory to human dwarfs and pygmies. Although the exact location of Punt is still debated, it was described as being lush and green, Sailors most likely reached it by travelling through the Red Sea or drifting down the Nile in small sailing boats. Many people believe that Punt had a huge influence on Egyptian culture, from their religion to their literature. Despite this, some historians question whether Punt even existed. Number 2. The Zulu Empire The rise of the Zulu Empire wouldn't have happened without wedlock. The start of the kingdom was spurred by Shaka Zulu, the illegitimate son of Chief Sen Zang Anoka. After dodging several attempted murders and bloody family disputes, Shaka became chief of the Zulus. Using his ground-breaking military tactics, Shaka helped the empire rise to its rich and famous heights. The Zulu Empire's biggest accomplishments stems from being one of the most feared African civilizations during the colonial period. By introducing the Iklua Spear and creating the bull formation, Shaka trained his warriors so well they eventually defeated the British invasion. The Zulu grew into a powerful but violent empire, however by the 1900s it had been absorbed into the Cape Colony. Today, parts of Zulu form the modern country of South Africa. And number one, ancient Carthage. An early Phoenician settlement, the ancient city-state of Carthage was located in modern-day Tunisia and covered much of the Mediterranean. Its strategic placement and abundance of trade allowed Carthage to grow quite wealthy. As the Carthaginian people were extremely skilled in furniture crafting, Punic cushions, mattresses and beds were an expensive luxury. At one point their Roman rivals unsuccessfully attempted to copy their designs. Carthage also created an intricate system of governmental checks and balances, wrote a constitution and managed an extensive library. Unfortunately, most of their literature was destroyed or given as gifts to Numidian kings. Only one book remains, a manual on agricultural technique that was translated into Greek. Eventually Carthage was burned and plundered by the expansion of the Roman Empire. However, the Carthage city-state left an indelible mark as a rich trading empire and a powerful commercial force in Africa. The bandwidth for today's podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. The show notes are held in two places, origins.info and patreon.com forward slash paulrex. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexie, P-A-U-L-R-E-X-Y. And of course many of you will know by now that there are many extra episodes of the Mysteries Abound podcast available at the patreon.com forward slash paulrex website. For every number, for example 174, there are also three extra episodes, 174A, B and C. And of course there will also be A, B and C for this episode 175 as well. These are available to patrons of the Mysteries Abound podcast. So if you think you would like to become a patron, visit the patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex website and sign up. It's as little as $1 per episode. So for less than a cup of coffee, you can have all this entertainment at your fingertips. And remember listeners, it's the patronage that keeps this podcast going. I'm afraid without that patronage, this podcast wouldn't exist. And recently I went on a bit of a holiday to northern New South Wales to a place called South West Rocks, lovely beachside place, and I stayed there at an Airbnb called Radar. And what turned out to be quite amazing was that the owners of the Airbnb, Fran and Tony, are also patrons and fans of the Mysteries Abound podcast. So a big shout out to you, Fran and Tony. We had a great stay at your place and a great afternoon session on the veranda. We had a few wines and cheeses and things like that, of course. So until next time, everyone, this is Paul saying bye for now. Keep well, keep safe and thank you for listening. And if you can support the podcast, please do so by becoming a patron. Bye for now.